Dearly beloved, we gather this evening to mourn the loss of the Apostle Peter. Of course, what is our loss would be heaven's gain. And he is now in a better place. But Peter started off following Jesus around, you know, 8030. And recently he's been killed by the Emperor Nero, crucified upside down. Because he didn't want to die the same way that his Savior died. The amount of bravery and the amount of things that he's done for us and the legacy that he's left is extraordinary. Some thoughts, some memories upon his life. Peter didn't start off as a very good example. He was a rash fellow, instantly choosing to follow Jesus on a whim, abandoning his fishing business and following him. He didn't even know where. He didn't even know what Jesus was about. And then Jesus, and we have that famous episode where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets the right answer. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're right, Peter. And then a second later, Peter, and being rash, not thinking what he's going to say, he tells Jesus, you can't go to Jerusalem and die. He rebukes Jesus. And Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He's come a long way from Satan to the apostle Peter who's written for us letters. Uh, We also remember when he thought that he could walk on water. And he went out of the boat and he took a couple steps and he looked at the winds and the waves and he began to sink. Oh, Peter, he thought he could do things, but he couldn't. And then we also sadly remember that evening, that last supper with Jesus. And he promises you, you may die and I will die with you. I will never deny you. I'll go through anything for you. And then, well, he runs into a couple little girls who ask him if he's been with Jesus and he denies it three times. Oh, Peter. But things turned around for Peter. Then we look forward and we see uh, Peter becomes not just this rash fellow who's getting himself in trouble, but he becomes an evangelist. And on the day of Pentecost, he's there and he's preaching the first gospel sermon since the death and resurrection of Jesus. And 3,000 people respond to that first message. And then Peter goes and he does the unthinkable. He's a Jew inside a Gentile's house and he preaches to the Gentiles and the first Gentiles are converted through Peter's message. He became quite the evangelist. And then he became quite the healer. He's with John going towards the temple and there's that lame man sitting at the temple gate and they say, we don't have money or gold to give you what you're asking for, but we do have this in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the lame man started walking and then he started running and then he started leaping like a gazelle and doing ballerina moves and everybody was amazed and everybody came to Peter. Peter, what is, what is this thing you're doing? And Peter began to preach and there once again, 2000 people get saved as a response to that healing. And then as time goes on it says that even his shadow as he passed by people and the sun was shining on him his shadow fell upon sick people and they were healed this guy was getting peter had some amazing things that we can remember and then there was that woman named dorcas who had died in her bed and all of her friends were sad and showing all the beautiful scarves and sweaters that she had knit. And Peter comes in and mimics what Jesus had done. He comes and says, Tabitha, arise. And she arises and they're amazed that she had come back from the dead. Peter was a rash fellow, but he became an evangelist. He became a healer. 
And then we see that he also became unintimidated. Yes, the very man who is ashamed to admit Jesus in front of a little girl is now in front of the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious authority of Israel, all 71 members. And he stands up to them and says, you can't tell us what to say because we respond to God. Not only putting, shutting them down and saying, we don't listen to you, but almost implying, you guys aren't listening to God, we are. And he endured beating from them, and he had a slap on the wrist from them, but he kept going. And him and his gang were unintimidated in the face of that kind of persecution. He was also unintimidated by Ananias and Sapphira, those, that early couple in the church that sold their property and promised to bring 100%, but only brought about 25 or so percent just to make themselves look good and pocket the rest. We get a reputation of fame and we get some money in our pocket. And Peter wasn't intimidated by this. He saw right through it said, guess what? God's striking you dead. And he tells his wife that as she comes in after, you're going to die like your husband too. And they both die. And this amazing boldness of Peter just led the church with such confidence, such unintimidated passion to go forward. And even when Jesus rose from the dead, we remember some of his more humorous moments that he had a fun side and he was unintimidated in that fun side. How John said, I'll race you to the tomb. And Peter said, oh, you're not going to beat me. And he runs with John. He loses. But Peter wasn't afraid. He wasn't intimidated by John's speed. He decided to run anyways. We remember all these things about Peter. And then later in his life, he becomes a writer. And he, well, we, we remember Peter. He couldn't really talk well. And he said a lot of things he shouldn't say. But he got together with some of his friends and they helped him write letters. And we got the benefit of hearing the one a few weeks ago, outsiders in First Peter, and reminding us that we're in the world, but not of the world, and that we're never going to actually belong here, and his encouragement to us how to survive on the outside. And then he writes the gospel with Mark, the gospel of Mark, and all the things he left for us there, the memories of Jesus, the significance of who he is. Then he became a halfway martyr. Herod grabbed him and put him in prison. And there that night before he was to be executed, an angel comes and visits him. And Peter thinks he's dreaming. He just goes through the motions. All right, chains are coming off, putting my clothes on. And it says the angel had to strike him to wake him up. Peter, he was so at peace with dying even back then. But the angel led him through all of the gates and he got out of prison free. And it was amazing how God used Peter in that way to encourage the church right before they went on their mission. But then the day did come. The day did come when he did become a martyr. And tonight we mourn the death of the apostle Peter, crucified upside down, lest he be crucified in the same way as his master. But we don't mourn because it's hopeless. He's now with the Savior he's been serving forever and ever. Now, Peter had that humorous life. He had his failures, but he had his victories. But one of the things we're so blessed with is he left us a last letter. He left us his legacy, final words. And he penned this letter knowing full well that he was on his way to death. It's almost, he didn't die on a deathbed. It was much more brutal than that. But it's almost as if this is his deathbed moment, his deathbed words, just before he goes to the cross like his Savior. 
And think about it. What would you say to somebody knowing that these were your last words? Well, Peter's left them for us. There's a few things he wanted us to remember. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. You already know this stuff, but I want to remind you about it. Verse 13. I think it right... As long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, I'm about to die, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And go ahead also one more to chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord Jesus and Savior through your apostles. Peter left us his last letter knowing full well that we need reminders. We are a forgetful species. Whether it's the keys that you can never locate, or all those facts you were supposed to have down for your test, or that Bible verse that you just don't know where it's at and it frustrates you, and you don't want to cheat and use Google, you want to find it on your own because you want to win, but you just can't. We're forgetful creatures. But mostly we're forgetful about who we are, who Jesus is, what he's done for us, our call on this earth. We are so forgetful about these things. And you know, it must be something to do with our fall. We forget that we originated with God and are from God, that we were made in his image and that we're to return there as his sons and daughters living with him forever and ever. We seem to forget that. We seem to forget all kinds of things and it gets us in trouble. You know, We come to church and so often I hear from people, oh yeah, that church is fine, but I don't ever learn anything there. And sometimes we have the mindset that we come to church to learn something that may be true, but there comes a point when maybe you need to stop learning and start sharing, or maybe part of the purpose of coming to church together is not to always hear something new but to be reminded about the things we're so quick to forget. Everything God says about us and who we are is so easy to forget because our nature preaches contrary and the world tells us that we're not beautiful enough, we're not skinny enough, we're not smart enough, we're not fast enough, we're not ambitious enough. There's all kinds of things that we aren't enough of. And the world keeps telling us that. And God has to continually preach so loud, but we forget all the time that we are enough, that he sent his son to die for us, and that through his son we're enough. And that all we have to do is keep living in faith with him and receiving his grace and walking day by day. We are enough. But we forget this. We fall victim to the world around us. We need reminders because we are forgetful. 
How many of you have a favorite recipe and you always look at the recipe every single time? I know I'm talking mostly to women right now. <laughs> we forget even things we do all the time. But I just want to make sure, was it one and a half teaspoons or one and a quarter teaspoons? Well, if it's sugar, just assume it was less. <laughs> it's probably the healthy route. We are very forgetful. So one of the things Peter leaves us with are things to remember. On his, so to speak, deathbed. All right, what are, what, are these, what are these churches I've been leading need to remember? I know how they are. I know they lose things and forget things. So here's what I want them to remember. We're forgetful for a few reasons before we get into things that we're to remember. We're forgetful first because, well, we're nearsighted people. That, that happens. We, we focus on what's in front of us and our problem and our feelings and our emotions and our pain and who said what two minutes ago, but we forget about what God said eternally. Like we just, we lose sight. And if you look at with me at verse nine of chapter one, we see how forgetful we can be. One nine, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted or short-sighted that he is blind. I mean, forget the fact that you need glasses to correct that. You're just blind. Peter says, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. It's so easy for us to become blind, nearsighted, shortsighted, and forget that we've been cleansed of our sins. We're not working up something, some favor, some response from God. We have it. We have all the attention, but we forget it. Peter needs us to realize we're forgetful people. So I got to remind you of a few simple things. Also, we're forgetful because if you look at verse 19, it says uh, in the middle of the verse that prophecy is for us uh, as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. We're in a dark place. Of course we get blind. It's hard for us to remember that we have something to help us see the word of God. And well, I don't know. It's pretty dark. I don't know what to do. And we forget. But maybe at the forefront of our forgetting is that we either don't get good teaching or we are hearing bad teaching. And that's what Peter was most concerned with was false teachers coming in his absence to tell the church stupid things. And Peter says, don't fall for it because you're going to forget everything you're supposed to be. We're going to meet these false teachers in detail next week. But at front, these are the people he's dealing with. He's dealing with people who were once saved, but now have fallen by the wayside. Chapters 2 ver verses 1 through 2 tell us a little bit about that, how uh, false teachers arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And if, if we're not careful, we're going to forget true doctrine because we're going to be listening to these false teachers. Peter's concerned about that. Now, what are these false teachers teaching? We know that they were once believers who have now fallen by the wayside by false doctrine. They're now spreading it. But what are they teaching? They're teaching two things. And these are things that Peter's concerned with. First, Jesus is not returning and he's not judging the world when he returns because he's not returning. The world's going to go on as it always has. No intervention from God. 
Our society is actually not far from this. If there are, if, if people do have some sort of belief in God, it's more and more becoming a deistic belief in God. Deistic belief is very different than what the Bible teaches us about God. It's the idea that God created everything but kind of stepped back because he can't really be part of it. It's too sinful for him and he's not going to really deal with it. It's just going to kind of run itself down to the ground. So these false teachers, Jesus is not coming. He's not judging us. So what's the second thing they teach? Logically, if he's not coming and he's not judging us, then we don't need moral boundaries. We can do what we want. So they're kind of like, freedom, people, do what we're doing. And Peter says, be careful, these people, in my absence, don't forget the things I'm going to tell you. Because they're going to come in and they're going to try to erase your memory clean. As if I was some sort of virus, now good riddance, he's dead, let's reboot the whole program. No, Peter says, don't forget the things that I taught you. So we're forgetful people. Therefore, tonight, things you probably already know, but we need to be reminded of. So shall we launch into these? Number one, he's got six things to remember. We are recipients of God's divine power. Verse three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Hello. So we're always going to like these self-help books and podcasts and blogs and we're scouring Google for help. And Peter says that God has already made us recipients of everything we need. His divine power, that's greater than your yoga power or whatever. His divine power is able to give us everything we need. Not most of it. Everything we need for life and for godliness. So there isn't some like urge to buy something, to add something. It's just Be with the church and walk with Jesus. You're going to find everything you need is already here at your disposal, at your fingertips, with you, around you, inside you. We simply need to let the divine power loose. But we are so tight-gripped and dependent upon the things that have been given to us by the world that I don't think we're able to let God's power just rule in us. And we need to be reminded, listen, the God of the universe, the infinite, eternal God who has no limitation is in us working to give us everything we need to live and to be godly. You don't even need to hear another sermon in your life to be godly. You need them to be reminded that you have this living within you. So don't be so dependent. Grow up. Don't, don't continue to drink milk from your mother in a spiritual sense, like kind of thing, dependent. Just grow up realizing that God is working in you. Let him go. Let him have the powerful reign in and through you. So he continues and says, uh, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Wow, knowing this enables us to that part of what he's given us with that divine power is his own glory and excellence. It's ours. And he granted this to us, verse 4. He granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature 
having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Number two, remember we are participants of God's divine nature. So we're recipients of his divine power. Now we're participants. Because of that divine power he's given us, we are participants of his divine nature. He said there that you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Sometimes we get too wrapped up in our mistakes and we get too wrapped up in our sinful passions and we fail to realize that I am not associated with my flesh, this egotistic desire to absorb everything in the universe, to fill in this hole within me and to make myself feel better and to, to, to give myself a name and an identity. We forget that that's not who I am. That's not my nature. My nature is in the spirit and in the spirit, I've been given God's divine nature that I can love like he loves. I can forgive like he forgives. I can even create to a much lesser scale like he creates. His divine nature is in us. Sometimes we get so creeped out by other religions that say we're going to become gods that we actually have totally forgotten that Christianity does say we're going to become like sons of God. And we almost just, we steer so far away from those cults and those erroneous teachings that we forget that we're not merely human. That to know God and to be participants of his divine nature means that we are also partly divine. He's given us his spirit to live within us, which means we have a connection with the Trinity. We have a connection with God. And if we're going to live forever, then that means that we are participants of the eternal nature of God. What God has done in Jesus is what he's going to do in us. Jesus, the two becoming one, the 100% God, the 100% man. Jesus is leading the way for us to, yes, in our, per, in our 100% humanity, to also become united with the Godhead. And that's what we look forward to in heaven is that marriage ceremony, that oneness where we and God become everything we were meant to be, made in the image of God forever and ever. We are participants of that even now. A little seed, if you will, the Holy Spirit within us is that little seed of promise of what's going to sprout and grow in the resurrection. Don't forget, Christian, where you're headed. Don't forget your true identity and your true destination. Participants of the divine nature. Man, that that fulfills my hunger more than any sinful lust on this earth. And that's what we need to remember. Verse 5, for this very reason, because of the divine power and the divine nature, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Don't be content with just, oh, I have a little bit of faith. I'm good. (laughs) Supplement this faith. Add to it. uh, Complement it. What we're going, what we see here is this third reminder is remember, add these seven ingredients to your faith. Your faith needs supplementing. It needs complementing. Add some stuff to it. And he's going to list for us these seven ingredients. And it's awesome. It's amazing what he asks us to add into. Now, what we want to see before we get into it is the, the key word ingredients. These are not steps. 
It's not like a seven-step program where Peter's saying, okay, remember, you have a seven-step program to follow. So you accomplish number one, you then move on to number two, you move on to number three, and we can rank each other. Who's, a number se- who's at level seven? Who's at level two? We need some level sevens up here because we got some ridiculous level fours. Like this guy, who is this guy? Uh, Patmos is around five and six, you know? Where's Pastor Mike? Seven? All right, good. Uh, we're not rating each other that way. It's not a seven-step program. It's a seven-ingredient program. And what's the difference? Steps are in uh, consecutive order. You have to do one before you do two. And two, become, two comes before three. But ingredients are all seven, but they go in together at the same time. And it really doesn't matter the order. If I'm baking a cake, I mean, sometimes the order might matter a little bit. But if I'm baking a cake, all that matters is that the flour, the butter, the egg, the sugar get in the bowl. Am I missing anything? Vanilla, maybe? I don't know. I don't <laughs> bake that stuff. But as long as it's all in the bowl and gets mixed together, we can make a cake. You can't do that if we just have flour in the bowl. You put that in the oven. I don't even know what happens to flour. <laughs> you can't do that. You have a bowl full of sugar. Well, your daughter might like it. Avalon might love it. But... Um, it's not very nutritious. Well, none of it's nutritious. <laughs> it's, but it doesn't do anything. You're just eating raw sugar. There's no cake. You're not making anything. So you have a bunch of single dimension elements, but they come together. Raw egg. Don't try that. <laughs> but they come together, and now you have a multiple dimension. And the dimensions come together and can now make something. That's why the word ingredient is important. These are seven ingredients. So, in other words, mix these seven things into your life and let them work themselves into your life not necessarily one at a time maybe you need to focus on one at a time but they're not like okay i graduate i'm now a loving person i can do away with that i graduated just gotta keep mixing the bowl these are going to make your faith into a nice fluffy beautiful cake something fuller than raw egg so these are your seven ingredients add these seven ingredients to your faith Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection. That should be on one line. And love. So here he says in verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. These seven ingredients. Supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. Now, these things, uh, different translations, maybe I'll give you a few of them so you can like see what some of the different translations say so you can kind of get like a, a broader view of what these words are talking about. Virtue is translated also as moral excellence, goodness, good character. Knowledge is also knowing God better or spiritual understanding. Self-control is alert discipline. Steadfastness perseverance, patient endurance, uh, passionate patience. How about that one? Passionate patience. Who's passionate about patience, right? Uh, Godliness, reverent wonder. That's an interesting spin because godliness could just sound like, "Mm, I'm like in church all the time, I'm godly. But what about that reverent wonder for the things of God? Maybe that would give us some godliness if we just approach it with reverent wonder. Just amazed at God. Brotherly affection is also brotherly kindness, love for other Christians, or warm friendliness. And love. 
love for everyone, generous love. It's, it's the word agape, agape love, the kind of love that God has. So again, it's not necessarily that we're doing a seven-step program. Okay, once I get virtue down, then I'm going to know God. Well, actually, sometimes knowing God can help you with your virtue, can help you with your character. See, you can't necessarily look at this as a seven-step program because you may never get past step one. How many of you are like really happy with your virtuous state? <laughs> and if you're going to raise your hand, you are brave, and I'm going to leave the stage, and you can take over. Uh, self-control. I mean, my goodness. Uh, self-control is really a big component of all of these I can't have virtue without self-control. In fact, all virtue, all character can be boiled down to do you control the self or are you just like a crazy animal running around? I know people like that. (laughs) So these are the seven ingredients and the more of them that are being mixed into the bowl of our faith, the better the kitchen will smell. And the more the world is going to say, hey, Hey, that's a life. So that's the idea. So add these seven ingredients to your faith. And those are the ones that we can work on. Uh, By the way, I just want to highlight real quick, just a little insight. Uh, Self-control. I really like that one. Um, Self-control can be hard because I, you know, you can go through your day and exercise wonderful self-control. I loved everybody. I was patient today. I had affection for my brothers and sisters and I was godly and my knowledge, man, I woke up and read the Bible and I like got all this insight about God and like self-control can do really good until, I don't know, about 10 in the morning. It has a limit. Have you ever noticed that self-control runs out of steam and generally The worst sins in the world happen at nighttime because people run out of self-control. I'm not tempted to binge eat ice cream at 9 a.m., nor am I tempted at 1 p.m. That's like, nah, I'm pretty good. I know that stuff's bad for me. I feel so much better when I don't eat it. I need to work today, so I can't pass on a sugar coma. You know, all these things like easy decisions. But at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, you know, dinner's kind of wearing off. There's a little bit of an opening in there, and it just, like, starts calling to you. And you're like, hmm. (laughs) Why not? I mean, and what happens is we make decision after decision after decision after decision all day long. And towards the end of the day, we're tired of making decisions and controlling the self. So we're like, "Mm, I'm out of gas. Let's just do it. It's going to feel so good. So (laughs) self-control. A lot of this is becomes so much better if we can get self-control down. What happens is I, I like um, one of them said uh, self-control is alert discipline. And one of the things that disciplines can do in our lives is as we exercise disciplines. Yes, it's exhausting for a while. But if we can set a pattern to practice it regularly for a set period of time, do you know what happens to your self-control? It becomes habit. And you know what happens with habit is it exhausts 0% of your energy. Habits just happen. I don't get up every morning and have a battle over whether or not I should brush my teeth, though I hate brushing my teeth. (laughs) We're not talking right now. (laughs) 
doctor, dentist guy over here. Shouldn't have brought this habit up. Deodorant. <laughs> Deodorant, you know, brushing. Like these don't become battles because they've become habits. I wake up and they're part of my day. I don't have to exhaust myself by 9 a.m. because, oh my gosh, I made five hard decisions. I had to eat breakfast. I had to brush my teeth. I had to put on deodorant. And what if we began to look at all of these seven ingredients and said, hey, I'm going to start trying to make a habit of some of these, even in a small way. Speaking of flossing, thank you, dentist, doctor guy. Um, here's, here's one of the first. <laughs> here's one of the first steps to incorporating these seven ingredients to become a habit is it's it's the one tooth philosophy you know if you if you need to make a habit of flossing tell your make yourself floss one tooth every night do you see where this goes now if you are in that big of a rush fine you're gonna floss one tooth put it away and go to bed but guess what you did the action and more likely than not, if you're going to floss one, two, three, it's like, what the heck? Finish it. <laughs> Just go through the rest of it. Like, we have to sometimes start small. This, this seven-list ingredient can sound overwhelming, but sometimes we just have to say, all right, I'm going to just do this one little thing. I'm going to open the door for somebody. I might be struggling with brotherly affection, but I'm just going to open the door and see what happens from there. And before you know it, opening the door can become a habit. You're going to think less about that act. Now you're going to be thinking about another act, and that's how you keep adding ingredients. The more and more we work, it's hard work at first, but when they become habits, they become part of our character. And then we can work on more. So there we go. And that little footnote rant about the seven ingredients and habit. So number one, uh, remember that we are recipients of God's divine power. Two, we are participants of his divine nature. Three, add these seven ingredients to your faith. And four, our faith is firsthand information. Remember that our faith is firsthand information. Even, especially today, it seems, it's probably every age, but the universities anywhere, the media, they want us to have this subtle thought creep into our mind. Maybe the Bible evolved over time. Maybe errors are slipped in. Maybe Peter didn't really write second Peter. Maybe somebody else wrote it. That's, I've, you know, there's hundreds of pages wasted in my commentaries about that issue. I was like, "Eh, whatever, Peter wrote it. (laughs) Let's move on. Um, Like, there... We need to remember that our faith is firsthand information. You know, a lot of talk that the Gospels were actually written hundreds of years after Jesus. Well, there's better evidence, actually, that they're firsthand accounts. And, but that's what Peter wants us to know is don't forget that your faith wasn't just simply passed down for thousands of years and sort of morphed like the game of telephone. Whisper, whisper, whisper. Someone at the end of the line hears something completely different. Purple elephants are funny. I don't like french fries. How did they hear that? What? It's not like that. It's been passed down from firsthand. It's firsthand information being passed down. Eyewitnesses. So that's in verse uh, 18, 16, chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't make it up. It's not a great story. We, you know, some great storytellers, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I didn't just see Jesus. I saw the majestic Jesus. And you remember where? 
On the Mount of Transfiguration, James, John, and Peter saw this. And this is what he's alluding to, verse 17. For when he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So remember, Christians, that your faith is not some other generation that said, you know what? We heard about this Jesus guy. Let's develop a doctrine. Let's develop a system of beliefs. Let's make the church. Peter says, look, everything you've been receiving came from me, came from the others that saw Jesus and heard Jesus. So that's what's great about the Gospels. We have firsthand accounts. That's what's great about Peter's letters. This is a guy who had eyewitness of Jesus. Firsthand information is so important. We can hold fast to our faith. Uh, so remember that our faith is firsthand information. Number five, remember to pay attention to the Bible. Sometimes we have to remember that. Pay attention to the Bible. For it will guide our way through the dark. So here we are in verse 19. We have something more sure. So what's he talking about? Remember, he just said, we saw and heard Jesus on the mountain. Now 19, he's saying, we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention so there's the prophets, right? The Old Testament he's referring to. By the way, the Bible in Peter's context is the Old Testament. I've always wondered. You know, we, we have a lot of talk about let's become the early church. Let's go back to the early church. Let's be like them. And usually what that means is we go to Acts and we mimic some of the models that they had there. If we really want to be the early church, we have to take the gospels away. And just verbally tell stories about Jesus. Because that's what they had at, at the first. Then we have to take away the epistles of Paul and the epistles of Peter. And we have to use just the Old Testament to talk about our faith and to model our church. That would be really interesting. What would the church look like today without the New Testament? That would be extremely fascinating. Um, it's a good social experiment. Maybe we'll do after we're done with the Bible. I'm just, just kidding. <laughs> Faith is fine. We're not going to touch it. <laughs> but um, pay attention to the Bible. Of course, he's talking about the prophets. And listen, we need to remember that it's worth paying attention to because, as he said, it's a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's referring to the return of Jesus, the morning star, the light shining upon this dark world. It's in its sleepy slumber of evil and wickedness. And as Genesis starts with evening, then morning, we're in evening and we're going to go to morning to the new creation. He's going to rise and the world's going to be different. There's going to be the new kingdom. And he's saying that. Pay attention to the Bible because the Bible will give us a preview of that coming light for us right now in the dark. So until the, the sun rises, use the Bible as your flashlight to find your way along. If we don't pay attention to scripture and the light that it's casting in front of our feet, then that's when we become forgetful and we lose our way on the path because the darkness is set in and we, we lost the trail. So we have to pay attention to the Bible. And yes, we need to pay attention to the Old Testament. The Old Testament formed the early Christians. So we can't just be New Testament people. 
so much of the New Testament is written out of the Old Testament. So I have a thick volume, huge volume, and it's called the New the Commentary of the New Testament's Use of the Old Testament. And it's just like almost every other verse, like, well, here he's thinking of this Old Testament passage, and or here he's directly quoting, or here he's inferencing it. And it's just it's an amazing commentary, and it just shows how much they were steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. We need to pay attention to the Bible, all of it, for it is light for our path in the dark. Number six, remember to trust the Bible. So we're now in verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So it's not that any of these authors are writing their opinions. And we can apply what he's saying about the Old Testament to the New Testament because we believe that all of Scripture is a closed canon. It's all together. It's sealed. Uh, And he's saying, look, none of this was written out of somebody's own opinion. Like, you know what? I hate sin. So let's just make up something about how God hates sin. Like that wasn't the deal. Because 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So no, no man sat down and said, you know what? Let's make a prophecy. I think I need some extra income. I got laid off. I'm going to write a book. It sounds like good pajama work. So I'm going to, you know, sit at home in my loafers, drink coffee and work at the computer all day. That's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. I don't have to leave the house. Amazon will even bring my food to me. So that'd be awesome. Uh, it wasn't like that. That wasn't the motive. Nobody did this out of their own will. They, they, but instead it says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit just comes like a mighty rushing wind, catches hold of their soul, and like a sail just begins to move them. Like, I must write. <laughs> something is so inside of me. I see something amazing. God has revealed himself. I have to share this. I have to share this. As Jeremiah Ezekiel said, maybe it was Jeremiah, that there's a fire in my bones that I, I have to let out. I have to let that fire out. It is Jeremiah. Thank you. Um, that's what he's saying happened is that the Holy Spirit moved men along. Right, right, right. And this is where we need to realize we can trust the Bible. Remember to trust the Bible because scripture is inspired. It is inspired. And it doesn't mean Beethoven had a wonderful idea and created a symphony. Not that kind of inspiration. But the inspiration when God reveals himself and the human heart is overwhelmed and it overflows with that revelation. And inspired means that every word is the very word of God. And we believe that because though humans wrote it, they were directed by the Holy Spirit. So we have human... um, diversity in scripture we have psalms we have letters we have uh proverbs we have prophecy we have history so many different ways of writing it wasn't just one monologue voice but there's human character in the scriptures there's literature there's grammar there's language things humans use humans wrote what god was showing but the holy spirit directed it that's important Directed, not dictated. He directed them in what they are writing. So it's inspired. That's why we can trust it. Peter's saying this is not our invention. Okay. So those are our things 
to remember. Those are the six. Number one, remember we are recipients of God's divine power. Number two, remember that we are participants of his divine nature. Number three, remember to add these seven ingredients to your faith. Being virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Number four, remember our faith is first-hand information. Number five, remember to pay attention to the Bible. It is our guide in the dark. And number six, trust the Bible for it is inspired. Remember these things. Simple. You may not like learn anything new, but these are the things that a dying Peter would say. Keep these in the forefront, church. These matter. Don't for, We're forgetful, and these are key things that are easy to forget. But we need reminders all the time. We need to revisit the simplicity. So in order to do that, I want to invite us to cultivate awareness. It's easy for us to go into like cruise control and just like not think, but cultivate awareness, work at becoming aware of the world around you, of what God is doing around you, what he's saying around you. We will find ourselves so much more mindful of him and less forgetful of him. Awareness. You know, when Jesus had the, the, the blood, the wine, and the bread resent, representing what he's going to do on the cross. And he's having that meal with his disciples, which Peter was at. You remember as he's breaking it and passing the cup, what he said to them? Do this in remembrance of me. We're about to take communion, which is the most proper and fitting first step application we can have to a message like this. We're going to remember But what if we were able to cultivate that kind of awareness everywhere? That though the wine and the bread are very important and remembering exactly what Jesus did, what if every time we came to a meal, we approached it with that remembrance? That as I down my water, you're all healthy, right? As I down my water and I eat my vegetables, I'm doing this in remembrance of the creator who made it available. Or what if... Every time I talk to a person and I can sense they're worried or there's something that they're agitated about. I decide to make that a reminder to pray. And just in the little things in life, uh, people that have uh, well, uh, alcohol problems or cigarettes or any kind of addiction or cutting for young people. There are things called triggers, right? Those things that come and they just make you, whoa, I need that. Um, what if, we, what if we intentionally planted triggers in our life? Triggers that reminded us of Jesus. And what if we got so good at cultivating this kind of awareness that even when we sat down to watch a movie, we were able to do that in remembrance of Jesus. That something in that film showed me a little bit more about what God desires in life. What if? What if we cultivated that much awareness? That's how we cannot be so forgetful. Keep Peter's things to remember in mind, but learn to find those triggers in life and say, yes, that's it. That's it. So let's ask ourselves this. Does this activity 
Remember, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So what if we expanded that beyond communion? Does this activity remind me of Jesus? Yes? No. And if it does, let's do more of that. If it doesn't, let's think about whether that belongs or not. And we could also ask it another way. How does this activity remind me of Jesus? And that's where we can begin to cultivate deeper awareness and say, wow, you know what? What I thought was an annoying conversation because I got to get to class and the copy machine is occupied and so-and-so is talking to me. Um, maybe this is to remind me of Jesus in the words I'm hearing or to practice the ingredients of patience, passionate patience. So I invite you guys to work with me at cultivating awareness that we can have a constant reminder of the things of Jesus in our lives everywhere we go. Amen.